Let's pray together once more. Father, we know from 1 Thessalonians that when a people hears the preaching of the gospel and the opening of your word as the word of God, you are to be thanked that this is happening. I thank God that when I preached to you the word of God, you received it not as the word of man, but as it really is the word of God which is at work in those who believe. So, Father, I thank you for all who are hearing the word of God as the word of God. To the degree that I have been faithful to the scriptures, I thank you for that, and I ask for that again. Guard my lips from claiming anything to be from you which is not from you. And guard us together from error and help us to see the word for what it really is, the word of God. And so let it be at work in us who believe, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday I tried to build a bridge from our talk about covetousness into the book of Hebrews. And let me cross that bridge backwards and then walk over it again with you so that you see it, the connection and then, and then we'll move into a passage in Hebrews in chapter 11. We were in Philippians 4, remember? And we were talking about my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Therefore, to him be glory forever and ever. And therefore, you don't need to be covetousness about things because God will supply all your needs. You can trust in him. And I also used Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Therefore, we can all say, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? We also linked in there Romans 8. Because that little phrase, what can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Reminds us of of Romans 8, doesn't it? Romans 8, 31, where where Paul asked that rhetorical question. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not then with him freely give us all things? Now, you recall from Philippians 4, 11 to 13, that the all things that will be provided for us, according to verse 19, and the all things that are promised to us, according to Romans 8.32, include the ability to starve and go naked. What we didn't do as clearly is, is keep reading in Romans 8. So let's just keep going there. After verse 32, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or uh, peril or persecution? No. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. What's the answer to that question? No. And yet, the, the sword, the peril, the famine, the nakedness, the distress, the persecution are all going to happen. Because the next verse says, as it is written, we are being killed all day long. That's a quote from Psalm 42. If you ever wondered whether the Psalms were realistic about the righteous suffering. We are being killed all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. So that's real. You did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. Will he not freely with him give us all things? We are being counted as sheep to be slaughtered. We are being killed all day long. You got to put verse 32 together with verse 35 and 6. And then comes the answer. No, 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 no. Don't misunderstand, Paul says. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other thing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The hope that we have as Christians is not to escape the sword. It is not to escape famine. It is not to escape hunger. It is not to escape persecution. It is that in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And that in them, nothing can separate us from the love of God and the love of Christ. Now, now we may be ready for one of the most amazing texts on faith in all the Bible. So I hope you will open your Bibles with me to Hebrews 11, verses 29 to 38. Hebrews 11 29 to 38. Let's read this. And while I read it, I'm going to alert you to be watching for something. I remember years ago when this text first clobbered me because of the amazing transition in the middle of verse. Well, I won't tell you which verse. You watch for it. Watch for the massive shift in this text in the kind of thing that God brings to you by faith. By faith. All right? Verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they had Tempted, it were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall we say? For time will fail 
me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the powers of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection. Stop. We're all excited at this point. Because faith is doing what it's supposed to do. And the rest of this text is under the prepositional phrase, by faith. Nothing is changing here. He did not insert in the middle of verse 35, now by unbelief, here's what happens. By faith, others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. That's as far as I'll read. This is a great text for blowing away the fog of what it means to live by faith. I hate the gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. I hate it. Because it is so damaging to people, so dishonoring to God, so obscuring of the glory of the grace of God in the lives of suffering people, and so contrary to Scripture. This text walloped me big time years ago, and I wanted to wallop you with five Points. So here's number one. Through our faith, God can and does work miracles and acts of providence to bring practical earthly help and deliverance to his people. By faith, God does work miracles. You sing. Evidently, you believe in signs and wonders. Somebody said to me the other day, John Wimber must be just waving his hands with joy over that song in heaven. And you're not laughing. I wonder if you even know who John Wimber is. Raise your hand if you ever heard of John Wimber. That's amazing how many have never heard of John Wimber. That's incredible. That proves you're Southern Baptists. That, that song would have never been written, I, I would guess, had John Wimber not lived on this planet and died a few years ago. I assume when you sing that, you mean it, that, that signs and wonders happen. They do. They do happen. 
Miracles happen. God works miracles for his people and acts of providence. Let me define those two terms, miracles and acts of, of providence. A miracle is something where God in, intrudes into the ordinary cause effect structure of things in a way that something really striking and unusual and out of the ordinary happens. And there are a bunch of them in this text. For example, the dividing of the Red Sea, verse 29, or the falling down of the walls of Jericho because trumpets are blowing, or the shutting of the mouths of lions who no doubt have been kept hungry so that Daniel would be eaten, or the quenching of fire for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're thrown into the fire, verse 34, or the resurrection of the son of the widow of Zarephath, verse 35. These are things we call miracles. They don't happen unless God intrudes and breaks the ordinary chain of cause and effect so that it's visibly strange. So I say miracles happen by faith in God's people to to give them practical help and deliverance. Yes, that happens and we ought to ask for it on the mission field and everywhere else. What I mean by acts of providence, when I say God does acts of providence to give that kind of practical help, is that God, like R.C. Sproul in his book, The Invisible Hand, God behind the ordinary looking course of cause and effect in the world is the governor over those things such that they turn out for the good of his people. And there are examples of that in this text as well. Let's look at a few of them. For example... Uh, Rahab did not perish because she had heard of the power of God in Israel, Joshua 2, 9 to 11. So rumor had it, and, and through ordinary conversation and gospel, or whatever you want to call it, the message got from the Red Sea up to Jericho long before the, the Jewish army ever arrived. And she had heard the news, she believed it, and by believing it, received these spies and got delivered. Or David conquers kingdoms. How? Wielding a sword. Good army. And yet, over and over again, you read in, in the book of Kings and Samuel and Chronicles, God gave them the victory. They did the fighting. They swung the sword. They shot the arrow. They drove the chariots. It looked like an ordinary victory to everybody else. But the Bible says God gave them the victory. God's invisible hand was behind every arrow and every sword slash so that it landed where it was supposed to land to get the victory for the people of God. Another example here is Gideon, strengthened out of weakness. Or another one would be uh, putting foreign armies to flight, verse 34, and so on. Elijah escaping the edge of the sword. What does he do to escape? He runs. He runs away from Jezebel. That's pretty ordinary. No big miracle happening there. But it says God enabled him to escape if he's the one being referred to there. So here's the first point. This is point number one. By faith, God does miracles for his people to give them deliverance and practical help. And by faith, God does more ordinary acts of providence by which he uses the things that are happening in the world to bring to pass things that cause your visa to show up just in time or uh, some door to open that you don't know how in the world it opened that you were begging God to open for you. By faith, by faith, 
It passed through the sea by faith. The walls of Jericho fell down, but also by faith Rahab did not perish, and by faith they conquered kingdoms and so on. That's point number one. Yes, let's ask God for them and look for them, hope for them. However, point number two, God does not always work miracles and acts of providence for the deliverance of his people from suffering. But sometimes, by faith, God sustains his people through sufferings, horrendous sufferings. Now, that's the point of verses 35 in the middle to verse 38. Here's another way to put it. True faith in God is no guarantee of comfort and safety in this life. True faith in God is no guarantee of comfort and faith in this life. I think that's absolutely crucial to teach in our churches and to see for missionaries especially and for the rest of us. The miseries in our lives are no sure sign of unbelief. The miseries in our lives are no clear or sure sign of unbelief. Now, you can see this in two ways in this text, in verses 35 to 38. You can see it in two ways. Number one, in verse 33, notice it begins, who by faith, by faith, conquered kingdoms. And then without any grammatical break in the list, in the sequence, it continues right on through verse 35 to 38, So that by faith can be shown grammatically to be governing the negative as well as the positive in this text. You need to make that plain. By faith they were tortured. By faith they experienced mockings and scourgings. Because grammatically the by faith that began in verse 33 is continuing on through the text. There's no stop and there's no replacing it with by unbelief. It is by faith that all these painful tragedies are happening. All this misery is received and endured by faith. You can see that grammatically. You don't have to guess at it. You don't have to speculate. It's there in the text. There's another way to see it. This one's even clearer. Look at verse 39. After the list is given, and after these people experience them and walk in sheepskins and are destitute and live in holes and caves, it says... All these, having gained approval through their faith, don't let anybody ever say, oh, they may, they may, they must be under the disapproval of God. This text says exactly the opposite. These people approved, approved, having gained approval. These are the people who are being tortured. These are the people who don't have any clothes anymore. These are the people who've lost their homes and are living in caves. These are the people of whom the world is not worthy. And they have approval. How do they have approval? They have approval through their faith. You're being well spoken of by God and others who see Through their faith, they did not yet receive what was promised. So you can see in two ways, textually, that all these negative experiences come to the saints of God through faith, not through unbelief. They come through faith. 
It's not owing to God's disapproval, but to his approval. Now, to make this, we've got to make this point strong, so let's get specific here. Let's look at some specifics in this paragraph, verse 35 in the middle to verse 38. In verse 35 in particular, it says, Others were tortured. From which we may infer, God does not always... Restrain the hand of the torturer toward his people. Now, you may at that point say, well, torturers have free will. And so God may want to restrain it and he can't restrain it. So don't call this a providential gift of suffering. What's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? That's a bad objection. The thing that's wrong with it is that it contradicts Scripture, lots of Scripture. For example, in Genesis 20, you remember the situation with Abraham and his wife? Abraham doesn't always love Sarah the way he should. And he goes down there to the territory of Abimelech who's not a Christian, that is not a believer, is not a God-fearer. And um, he says, now, Sarah, you say you're my sister because if you say you're my wife, you're so pretty that he's going to want you in his harem, and the only way he can get you in his harem is to kill me if you're my wife. So tell him you're my sister, and then if they take you, they won't kill me. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, that's exactly what happens. And she goes into the harem, and the first thing you do on the first night of a new wife in your harem is to have sex with her, because that's why you got her in the first place. She's pretty, and and you add women to your harem because you like spice. Variety is the spice of life. He He didn't have sex with her that night. Why? I'll read it to you, verse 6. Of Genesis 20, God comes to Abimelech and he says, I kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Don't ever tell me or each other, God cannot restrain the heart of a pagan king and keep him from sinning. And if he can do that to an Abimelech, he can do it to a jailer about to beat up a Christian in a Mozambique jail. So that that free will stuff about, oh, poor God, he would like to restrain them, but they have free will and he can't do it is sheer. There are so many stories in the Bible where I could show you how God does restrain. The heart of the king is like a river in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Proverbs 21, verse 1. The steps of the man are ordered of the Lord. The the, the lot is thrown in the lap and every decision is from the Lord. Come on now. 
Sure, people are responsible for their decisions. Sure, we have to live with some mystery and confusion in our theology. But let's not cancel out clear texts because of philosophical presuppositions about the will of man. Let's let text stand. Let the will text stand. Let the sovereignty text stand. Let's hold them. If you can't put them together, live with them. They're in the Bible. Don't cancel out texts. If God wants to restrain a torturer, God can restrain a torturer without compromising the accountability of his will towards Almighty God. That's just there in the Bible. It's there. Embrace it, Southern Baptists. You don't have to be called any particular theological name to embrace it. Just be called Biblicists. Take whatever name people want to slap on you when you say, I believe the Bible. I believe the whole Bible. I believe the hard text. I believe the easy text. Here's another example from the text besides the one about torture. Verse 37. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. This is almost too horrible to think about. Tradition says that Isaiah died that way, being sawn in two. Don't know whether that tradition is true, but that's what the old traditions say. And here's the reason I point to that one. Faith at this moment is going to be so challenged that only by a miracle of dying grace will you be able to hold on to it. Because not only at this point do you see death just around the corner, but you see that it's going to be administered to you in the most horrible way anybody can think of. And so you, you don't have the glory of a nice romantic bullet in the head or your head chopped off real quick. Nothing romantic. I mean, that's not romantic. I mean, when, when John and Betty Stam died and he had to kneel over first and she had to watch while they hacked his head off and then she had to bend over and get her head hacked off in China. There's nothing romantic about that. Nothing beautiful about that. It's just horrible. They were in their underwear. They were in their underwear. And she had to watch it. And know that was coming to her. So what, where do you look? What do you do? It's not beautiful. And this being sawn in two. I remember Helen Roosevelt came to our living room one time to speak to about a hundred kids on missions. Raise your hand if you know who Helen Roosevelt is. Raise your hand. Oh my goodness. Forgive me. I just. Um, she was a missionary um, during the war in, uh, tell me the country, Congo. And uh, she was raped and, and she's written many books. And um, she told us that while she was sitting there, having been taken captive and beat up so that her eyes were so swollen shut, 
that they taunted them by describing the kind of tortures they were going to have the next morning. And she said, the worst thing about this was not the reality, but the threat. And what they said they were going to do was to, to take sharp knives and cut off parts of their flesh, cook them, eat them before they killed them. That's what, that's what they threatened them with the night before. And they all thought, well, they mean this. It did not happen to her. Lots of horrible things did, but that didn't happen. So the, the point I'm making here is when, when it says sawn in two, it means that Christians are going to face kinds of dying that are so horrible that they will tend to cry out, my God, my God, where are you? I mean, die, yes, but be tortured like this. Are you my father or are you not my father? And I just want to get you ready. Jesus endured it. And some of you will endure it. Some of you are enduring it because it doesn't have to be a saw. It might be cancer. And you need to learn to trust him. I mean, my whole living by faith in future grace is to get you to be so satisfied in God that you can say with Psalm 63, 3, the steadfast love of the Lord is better than life. Here's the clearest example of how faith delivers and faith sustains. Look at verse 34. Escaped the edge of the sword. They escaped the edge of the sword by faith. Verse 37. Now drop your eyes down to verse 37. They were put to death with the sword. So by faith they escaped the edge of the sword. And verse 37. By faith they were put to death with the edge of the sword. Exactly like we have the story in Acts 12. Right? About that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And then the next verses say that he arrested Peter, seeing that it pleased the Jews. Only God intervened for Peter and he got a miraculous escape. So James beheaded Peter The jail doors fling wide open. And both of them by faith. So my second point is God does not always in whether you suffer or whether you escape. God is. Having faith is not the final determining factor in whether you suffer or whether you escape suffering. God is the final determining factor in whether you do. Now, to me, this is immensely comforting because if in my suffering you had to come to me and add to that burden, the burden, John, you wouldn't be suffering if you had faith. If you add that burden to me, I think I would be crushed. So it's very good news to know that you can't come to me and say that with any surety. And in my church, I have said to my people many times, I will not come and say in the hospital bed, say to you in the hospital bed, you wouldn't be here if you trusted God. I'll never say that to my people. And it's not because I'm afraid to say hard things. 
It's because I don't find it in the Bible. So point three is, whether you believe or whether you don't believe is not the deciding factor in whether you suffer or whether you don't. God decides whether you suffer or whether you don't. And by faith, we escape the sword. And by faith, we die by the sword. And God decides whether we live or whether we die. I quoted a couple of days ago, remember, a couple of texts on that issue. Job, the Lord gave, his ten children are killed. His ten children are killed. Ever lost a child? Don't raise your hand. Many of you have lost children. What do you do? Shake your fist in God's face and say, you got no right? No, you didn't do that. I hope you said the Lord gave. Well, first of all, you put ashes on your head. You tore your clothing. You fell on the ground. And so did Job. And it says he worshipped. Ashes, torn clothes, writhing in pain, tears flowing down his face. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why do you cry? Do you believe? Or I gave you also James 4, 15. Come now you who say tomorrow we will... Go up to such and such a town and spend time there and trade and get gain. You don't know your life. Your life is like a vapor. Rather, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So you may say today, I'm going to go to lunch at 12 o'clock. You don't know that. It's an arrogant thing to say, James says. Unless tacit in your mind is, if the Lord wills, I will live until 12 o'clock. And go to eat lunch with my friends. To presume that you live and have a right to live till 12 is arrogance, James says. You don't have a right to live till 12. And if you live till 12, just like the brother who led us in prayer said, why are you here this morning? By the grace of God, I'm here this morning. Why are you going to get to lunch by 12? By the grace of God, you'll get to lunch by 12. Not because you deserve to get to lunch by 12. So the point... Three is your faith is not the deciding factor. Ultimately, whether you get to lunch by 12, God decides. Fourth point, the common feature that unites the faith that escapes and the faith that endures is that both of them believe God is better than life. And what you get now, and better than death, and what you lose later. God is better. Faith says this. Faith says, if I have everything in life now, God is better. And faith says, if I lose everything this world has to offer in death, God is better. That's the way faith talks. That's what I've been trying to say all these days and hours together. Faith is being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. And he is so much more satisfying that if you have it all now, he's better. And if you lose it all now, he's better. That's what faith says. That's the way faith talks. Therefore, to live is Christ and to die is what? Amen. To die is gain. Where do I get that from the text? Verse 35 By faith, understand, women received back their dead by resurrection. 
and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now, I'm not totally sure of this interpretation, but here's my guess at what better resurrection means here. I think it means better than the resurrection of the widow son of Zarephath. Some widows obtained their dead back by resurrection. So the little boy, Elisha, comes, lies on him. He's raised from the dead. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. And here are some people who didn't accept escape so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Meaning one that you don't have to die again after. Lazarus had to die again. That poor little boy had to die again. It's a good resurrection, but it's not the best resurrection. Best resurrection is one where you don't have to die again. And so they were willing to take on death for that one. I think that's what it means. It, there may be another meaning there. I've heard Joseph's son give another interpretation here, and he may be right. So, But I give you that for your consideration. God is so good that to die is gain. To be with him in the intervening time before the resurrection of our bodies is, is far better, Paul says in Philippians 1. And when we have our resurrection bodies back, that's a better resurrection than anything we could experience here. And it will be glorious. So, the great challenge, pastors, if you're here, missionary pastors preaching overseas, those who are trying to plant churches, the great challenge we have is to breed a people who love God more than they love family, more than they love life, more than they love retirement, more than they love computer games, more than they love vacations, more than they love health. They love God so much. They're so satisfied in God. So ravished with his fellowship that when they have it all in this world, he's better. And when they lose it all in this world through death, he's better. And they are rocks in our churches. They are rocks. I've got some people like that in my church. I've watched a few of them die. I watched Patty die. 38 years old, four kids died of breast cancer. And it was a horrible death. She seemed to die and then come alive and die and come alive. And she cried for death, but she never cursed God. She never cursed God. I, they asked me, what are you going to say about faith here at her funeral? What did faith look like? And I said, the triumph of faith in Patty's life was she didn't curse God. That's what it looked like. You can't laugh while you're vomiting in your own dying gasps. But you cannot curse. And she didn't. Fourth point. Quickly. Well, that was four, wasn't it? Okay. Where's my fifth point? There it is. Those who love God more than life and suffer willingly, awaiting something better than what earth can offer, are a gift to the world. Those who suffer willingly and by faith accept what God has to give and count him better are a gift to the world. Where do I get that? What do I mean by that? 
Look at verse 37 at the end of the verse, middle of the verse in verse 38. They went about in sheep's clothing, sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute. No preppy blouses, no cool slacks. Being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. People of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. What does it mean when it says people of whom the world was not worthy? Why does he insert that little phrase there? People of whom the world was not worthy. Um, It means that the world didn't deserve them. Right? The world is not worthy of them. Another way to say not worthy of is to say didn't deserve The world did not deserve them. But if you say the world did not deserve them, you mean they were given to the world as a gift. And the world didn't deserve that gift. And that's exactly right. So now the question is, how how are suffering, destitute, unclothed, cave-dwelling saints a gift to the world? How are you suffering saint out there? who right now are walking through hell in this life, a gift to the world. And I close with this. You're a gift to the world or they are gifts to the world because God has ordained and designed. And I could point you to many texts here, like 2 Thessalonians 1.9. God has ordained and designed the suffering of his children To be an occasion where they express so much superior satisfaction in God, even though what is being taken away from them is precious, that the world sees the worth of God in the joy that they still have in the midst of their suffering. That's how they're a gift to the world. They are a living placard of the surpassing glory and worth and treasure of God above health, above wealth, above prosperity, above family, above successful ministry, above retirement, above vacations. I mean, if we are going in the Southern Baptist Church, or the Baptist General Conference Church, or the evangelical movement worldwide, or Christianity per se, if we are going to be living displays of the worth of God above the world, how in the world will we do it when we look to the world like we value exactly what they value? Same houses, same cars, same retirement plans, same safety procedures, same escapes to the suburbs, same everything. How in the world will they see God? Therefore, when it says the world is not worthy of these cave-dwelling, tattered-clothed, beat-up Christians, it means God has given them to the world to see something Precious, and they don't deserve to see it. And God loves the world. God loves the world so much, He'll strip His people bare. He'll put them in caves. He'll let them be lashed. So that in that moment, as they say, to die is gain, the world will have its mouth shut. Our posh lifestyles don't shut anybody's mouth. 
They don't impress anybody. When was the last time anybody ever asked you, what's the reason for the hope that is in you? Because you look like you hope in money. Just like they do. Why would they ask you? Until something happens in your life so that your hope is beyond this life in God, why would they ask you? That's pretty radical, isn't it? Almost sounds suicidal. It isn't. But there are choices to love. I'm not asking you to jump off a temple here. There are choices to love that you can make in your life that will cost you. Cross the street, cross the office, write a letter, make a hard phone call. Just some little choices to love hard people that will look like you you must have your hope somewhere else than in the ordinary give and take of worldly benefits. And I'd like to hear more about that. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, these are... These texts in Hebrews are amazing. Yesterday, these saints were rejoicing over the plundering of their property. Today, the saints are stripped and destitute and living in caves, and the world is not worthy of them, and they're, they're living by faith, and they have the approval of God. What are you trying to tell us, Lord, from the book of Hebrews? What are you trying to tell us? And I'll let the brothers and sisters answer that. By the power of your Holy Spirit teaching us now. In Jesus' name, amen.